I invite you to open your Bibles now to the book of Job as we continue in this delightful book, a hard book, and yet so many wonderful truths in it. Job chapter 23 is what we'll be reading this morning. Job chapter 23. I just want to remind you that manuscripts are available. If you um, are a member of Harvest of Grace Fellowship, you've received that already in your email. If you're listening online um, and would like to receive the manuscripts, feel free to send us an email and, and let us know that. They will also be posted uh, when the sermon is posted um, on our website as well, if that's a help to you. Job chapter 23. Notice if you just uh, have your Bible open, chapter 22, uh, Eliphaz uh, is speaking and one of Job's friends, quote-unquote, and he's accusing Job of great wickedness. If you look at verse 5 of chapter 22, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. You have exacted pledges for, of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. And it just goes on and on. He's just charging Job with the most egregious offenses. Uh, he has no evidence for any of this. Uh, none of these things, of course, are true. But Eliphaz is con convinced that these, they, they must be true because Eliphaz, of course, is holding to what we've called the system. God blesses good people. God punishes bad people. Job is being severely punished. He must be severely wicked. And that's all he has to say for comfort. Well, then we come to chapter 23, which is Job's response to all these charges and allegations that Eliphaz has made against him. Let's pick it up, chapter 23, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter, my hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Our God in heaven, you've given us uh, this testimony of your servant Job, and you've given us the Holy Spirit that we might understand. Uh, you've given us this word to deepen our faith, to grow our faith, and I pray, O oh God, that that would be exactly the truth today, that that would be our experience 
as you show us again all that you are for us in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. One of the uh, great joys of springtime is watching things grow. I hope you uh, participate in that joy. Uh, watching things just poke their way through the ground and, and develop leaves and, and, um, and then flowers or whatever uh, God has given them to do. Uh, it's a wonderful, miraculous thing. This spring I, I, I tried a little gardening. I bought a, um, a tray, a uh, starter tray, planted some seeds in there, cucumbers and, and lettuce and tomatoes. And uh, it was just fa- fascinating to watch the cucumbers after just a few days unfurl and begin to grow, leaves spreading out, to, to, uh, the uh, lettuce and the, uh, the tomatoes uh, a few days later. Um, it really is an amazing thing that God has created for these tiny little very dead-looking seeds to sprout into these living, growing, fruit-bearing plants. Well, the growth of faith in the soul of a man is equally awe-inspiring and miraculous. I think it's easy for uh, us, particularly if you've sort of been born and raised in the church, it's easy to think that faith just, just sort of happens to you. It's like getting old. Um, you, you just you go to church and... Um, and faith just happens. It's very natural. Well, the, the fact is, it is the most unnatural thing in, in all the world. It's the most supernatural work of God in the world today. For God to create a living faith in Jesus Christ and in God in a formerly, utterly dead heart that was committed to lies and unbelief, It's a miracle. And for God to continue growing our faith is the miraculous intervention of God. It is an awe-inspiring thing. And as we're going through the book of Job, we're seeing God do just that miraculous, awe-inspiring work in Job's life. Though we know from chapters 1 and 2 that uh, Job's sufferings are um, not caused by, right, any lack in Job, yet we also see through these sufferings, God is doing a beautiful, purifying, strengthening work in the life of Job. His faith is changing and growing. It's being purified. We know from Job's speeches that Job once held pretty much to the system. Job once counseled. As his friends counseled him. He, he once held to this very simplistic idea of God. That God blesses the good people and punishes the bad people. And Job counseled out of that. Well, he was a sincere man of faith. But his faith was not yet perfected. And, and that was an imperfection. Well, Job's sufferings obviously have utterly um, burned away that imperfection. Job has completely abandoned the system. He realizes it does not account for life as he knows it. It doesn't account for the blessings that God gives to wicked people. Job talked about that a little uh, earlier on um, in uh, chapter 21. You You can read that. The wicked do prosper. Just look at them. God's not punishing them. And the righteous do suffer. Look at me. And so Job's faith has been purified. He has a better understanding of God's ways in the world. And he has a deeper, he's developing deeper convictions concerning God himself. 
Um, we find that development happening uh, through his, throughout his speeches. If you remember, in chapter 9, Job uh, expresses this heart wish, oh, that there were an arbiter. If there was just someone who could stand between me and God and mediate between us and reconcile us. But it's just a wish. His, his, the sense you have in chapter 9 is that Job doesn't believe there is such a one. Well, that changes in chapter 16. Even now, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. His faith has grown. It grows even more. Chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in my flesh I shall see God. That is a deepening conviction concerning God's salvation. And so you see, the, the, the devil uh, was quite confident that if Job was put to the test, Job's faith would prove to be a fake. That Job just worships God for the gifts. But it, it, the exact opposite has happened. Job's faith has been proven true, and instead of uh, Job's faith being weakened, it's being purified and deepened. He turns to God over and over throughout the book. Most of his speeches are, are directed to God. He can't help it but to cry out to God. The problem is he can't find God. And that's where we begin in our text this morning. That Job senses that God is hidden from him. Verse 3. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. And that I might come even to his seat, I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. One of the evidences of Job's uh, righteousness before God is he longs to meet with God. If you're a wicked person, your conscience is telling you you are a wicked person. Uh, there is a voice within you that tells you that God is to be greatly feared. The last person, uh, the last reality in all the universe you want to meet as a wicked person is God. But Job is eager to meet with God. He longs to meet with God. And not just to meet with God, he longs to come to, before the judgment seat of God. That's verse 4, verse, end of verse 3. That I might come even to his seat. He wants judgment day. Now that maybe surprises us because I think most of us um, might feel a little trepidation at the thought of judgment day. At the thought of standing before the living God of heaven and earth and being, being judged. Righteous or unrighteous. Well, you see, again, Job... Uh, is eager for this, this to happen because he's convinced that God will receive him and God will hear him and, and God will acquit him. He's absolutely convinced that, that he has nothing to fear uh, on Judgment Day. I know that he, uh, what he would answer me and, and I would understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? Would he just squish me out like a little bug like, like he could do? No. He would pay attention to me unlike his friends. He would pay attention to me. He would hear me. 
There, an upright man could argue with them, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Innocent people have nothing to fear before the judge of heaven. Because God is just. You see, if you're an innocent person and you go before a corrupt judge, well, you have a lot to be afraid of. Who's paid him off? But if you go before a righteous judge, a judge who only, always does what is just and right, and you're innocent, you have, that judge is your refuge. Job wishes he could have his day in God's court. I want you to imagine that um, someone went to your boss uh, where you work and uh, falsely accused that you were uh, uh, stealing money from the company and apparently had some evidence they cooked up and the boss was convinced uh, that it was true and and has uh, threatened to fire you. Well, what would you want to do? You'd want to go talk to the boss. You would want to go and set the record straight. You'd want to go and prove your innocence and then make sure that, that there's nothing unresolved between you and your boss. That's what Job wants. He wants this to be resolved between him and God. He's confident that it can be. And it's what he needs more than anything. Ash writes in his commentary, if we ask Job, what is the longing of his heart? He will answer that deeper than the desire for his riches to be restored or even his children to be given back to him is the heart yearning to stand before God righteous. He wants to stand before God and be declared by God righteous and by virtue then of righteousness restored and reconciled to God. Well, isn't that your desire? Isn't that what you want more than anything? To have God say to you, you are righteous, you are free to enter into my presence and enjoy my glory and my love forever and ever and ever. Isn't that what you want more than anything? Is there anything in the world that's more valuable than that? Anything that you might say, well, this, maybe that. Isn't this, isn't the the truth of being justified before the judgment throne of God and, and being found righteous to be restored, to enjoy the glory of God forever and ever, isn't that what you want more than anything? Well, that's what Job wants. And he's desperate for it. He wants to be reconciled to God, but he can't find him. Verse 8, behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. I go north, south, east, and west, and, and he's not there. I can't see him. I can't perceive him. Job is like a little child lost in a department store. No matter where he turns, mom isn't there. No matter which way Job turns. God, he he can't perceive God. God's ways are mystery to him. He's lost when it comes to God's purposes. God's ways in his life. Remember, Job knows nothing about chapters 1 and 2. That's a complete closed door to him. So he has no idea that his suffering is a part of God's great plan to glorify his name and to defeat the devil. 
Job is engaged in the greatest, most magnificent battle of all, the battle between God and his, and his enemies. But Job doesn't know that. All he knows is that his life has been devastated by the God that he worshipped and adored, and it makes no sense. It makes no sense. But in a world full of unanswered questions, Job discovers a glorious conviction. Verse 10, but he knows, he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job, you see, once again, finds this conviction, this faith conviction, welling up within him that God is a saving God. And a conviction that, therefore, when this trial is over, uh, he will come forth as gold. When it's all said and done, Job will be justified. He shall have his heart's desire. His faith will be found genuine and he will be reconciled to God. He's convinced of it. Now, on what basis is that confidence founded? It's founded primarily on the things he's coming to understand and believe about God. Notice how Job speaks, first of all, of the omniscience of God. He knows the way that I take. That's a wonderful statement. In a sea of circumstances that Job does not understand, in a world of painful things that he, and, and, uh, that he, he just can't figure out, and, and, and things that he, that he doesn't know, he doesn't know so much. But here's this thing that he discovers. God does know. God does know. He knows. God knows the way that I take. Though I cannot discern God's ways, He can discern mine. That's a wonderful uh, place of comfort and peace. I want you to just imagine your typical average 10-year-old sitting in the, the back seat of the car on a, on a trip to California. And imagine if you were uh, able to go and interview this, this, this young boy uh, somewhere in the middle of Iowa and, and you asked him some questions. You said to him, uh, son, what, what road are you on? And he would say, I don't know. And he said, well, how long, did, how long is it going to take to get to California? I don't know. Where, where are you going to eat supper tonight? I don't know. Where are you going to sleep tonight? I don't know. He doesn't know all sorts of things, really important things, things like where, where, what he's gonna, where he's going to get his next meal and, and where he's going to find a shelter to sleep that night. Uh, he doesn't know any of it. Why is this young man not frantic with worry? He just goes back to his book or his little video game and he just shrugs his shoulders. I don't, I don't know. It's clear he doesn't have a concern in the world. And some people might, right, you might, you might think, well, what an irresponsible young man. You got to eat, got to sleep, got to figure this stuff out. Why is he anxious about all these things he doesn't know? And the answer, of course, is because he believes his parents know. He's in the back seat, they're in the front seat. I don't know, but dad knows. Ask dad. Mom knows. And that's enough, you see. 
He doesn't need to know. They know. It's a fascinating uh, line in, in John chapter 16, verse 30, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's, he's told them that he's going, to, he's going to leave them. He's going to go away. He's going to go to the, back to the Father. And they're not going to see him. And they're clearly distressed by this, as you can only imagine. But as Jesus explains, uh, as, he, as he can, to their limited understanding, they don't, they don't understand clearly. But you know what they say to him in John chapter 16, verse 30? Now we know that you know all things. They, they don't say, oh, now we get it. They, they don't really get it. There's so many things they don't understand, but, but it's clear to them, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And that's enough. Friends, our current context is filled with all sorts of things that we don't know. It's amazing how much we don't know. About the disease itself, experts shrug their shoulders. They don't know. Uh, we don't know how long this pandemic is going to last. We don't know uh, the economic impact, what the economic impact of the shutdown is going to be. We don't know what the next month or year or two years might hold. Most likely it will hold some sorrow and loss, but we don't know. We don't know. And God's people can experience great anxiety in, and stress trying to figure it out, trying to gain the knowledge. But you see, whatever we think we know can change tomorrow. You'll never find comfort in what you know. But here's a rock to stand on. God does know. Your Father in heaven knows what you need. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't worry. Your Father in heaven knows. He knows where this thing is going. He knows what he's doing. All these important things, we can just say, I don't know. I don't know. But my Father knows. He knows the way. Spurgeon says this, it is a great comfort that when we cannot see the Lord, He sees us and perceives the way that we take. Our case may be quite beyond our own comprehension, but it is all plain to him who seeth the end from the beginning. Praise God. He knows. Whatever questions you might have in your life, God knows. Jesus knows. And we can trust him. Secondly, Job is just coming to a, we've seen this happening, a deepening conviction concerning the justice of God. It's a, it's a fascinating thing uh, that as Job senses injustice from God, it, it just presses, is God really unjust? And he, he just comes back again and again. No, God is not. He is fundamentally just. Notice his, the uh, comfort he finds in verses 10 through 11. He knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way. I've not turned aside. I've not departed from the commandments of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Uh, we noted this last week, so I won't spend a great deal of time here, but, but, but remember Job's confidence that this is going to, in the end, turn out well is, is he has two convictions. God is just and I am innocent. And because God is just and I am innocent, when he, he's absolutely confident that that will result in his acquittal. 
that he will be declared righteous before God and receive the blessing of a restored relationship with God. And last week, if you remember, we just celebrated, that's the glory of the gospel. Though you and I in ourselves are not righteous, at least not righteous enough to stand in the presence of God and receive the judgment of innocent, in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we are. Both by virtue... Uh, of his imputed righteousness, right? The, the, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ where your sin is washed away. You know, we just we get so used to hearing this and, and, we, and we might be dull to it, but that, that your sin, your actual sin is washed away and the actual obedience of Jesus is given to you as your righteousness. So bold I shall stand, right, uh, before the throne of God on that day. Your sin is all gone. Righteousness is freely given to you. And on the basis of the, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to your account, God says, innocent. Because you're innocent in him and God is just, you shall be acquitted. And then Jesus bears the fruit of obedience and righteousness in your life. So there's evidence that the, the Holy Spirit is at work. We have reasons for great confidence. God has done a great thing. Jesus died for us. That's, Paul just goes back to that over and over and over again. Uh, and because that's true, and because of what that means, God will certainly save us. And so Job is convinced that he will be in the end of vindicated because God is just and he is innocent. We can have the same. But then number th uh, the third thing, uh, the unchanging sovereign purposes of God. So Job has, has, um, he senses the, the wonder of God's omniscience, the glory of his justice, and then this the, the unchanging sovereign purpose of God. But well, let's follow it along. Verse 13. He is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. So Job just reminds his, his, himself and his friends God is one. That's what the Hebrew literally says. God is one. It means he's not double-minded. He doesn't have a variety of, of uh, you know, contrary purposes. God is one magnificent, glorious purpose for the whole world and for Job's life. And not only does God have a great purpose, he accomplishes his purpose. Who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. That's what it means to be God. So, everything God wants to do, God does. He's never, ever, ever frustrated. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Who is greater than God? Who can make God turn away from what he has decreed to do? No one can. But notice that as Job thinks of this, it is not a comforting thought. Verse 15, Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider him, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Well, what, what's going on? Well, have you ever been frightened by the realization that God actually is in total control of your life, not you. God is in total control of your life. How many days you're going to live? 
Um, God's in complete control of all the tragedies you're going to experience. Every tear you're going to cry. God's even in control ultimately in, over the sins that you commit. God's in control. Well, that's not immediately comforting because what if God has ordained devastatingly hard things for you? When you, when you, when you look at people who suffer horrific losses, the loss of a child, the loss of a beloved spouse or friend, the loss of their health. Johnny Erickson Tata, 16 years old, and she's a quadriplegic suddenly because of a diving accident. God ordained, Johnny Erickson Tata will tell you, God ordained that for me. And we can easily stand here and say, well, if, if God it ordains that for her, what, what awful thing might he have ordained for me? What grievous, horrific heartache might God have ordained for me? What if he has ordained that my worst fears come true? Well, that's a legitimate question. But friends, you see, this is where we have insight that Job is coming to but does not yet fully grasp. This is where God's revelation to us in Jesus Christ as New Testament Christians is so precious. Because you see, Job's fear of God's sovereignty is, is rooted in his, in his sense that he's under the judgment of God. And he doesn't know why. He doesn't, it doesn't seem right. But that's what clearly seems to be the case. God has assaulted him. And this is, this is his grief. This is why he longs for a mediator. This is why his heart is, is breaking as he, as he seeks for God. Where is God? That's the question of Job's heart. Where can I find God? It's a question that many people ask in, in the times of deepest suffering. Where is God and where can I find him? And the gospel answer is stunning. Completely unexpected. Because the gospel answer to the question, where can I find God, is on a cross. As New Testament Christians, we find God. God has revealed himself on a cross, dying for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's answer to all those who ask, where are you? And consequently, all the sovereign ways of God in the details of our lives must be read through the lens of infinite love that brought him there. And the infinite grace that pours from there, from the cross. This is so critical. This is the fundamental difference between a Christian conception of a sovereign God and a Muslim conception of a sovereign God. Muslims believe that Allah wills and no one can stay his hand, that God is pure sovereignty. But the sovereignty that we profess as followers of Christ is a sovereignty, a divine sovereignty that is bound by infinite love and sealed in atoning blood. It's sovereignty in the pursuit of love and grace for sinners. And so the, you see, the, 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 the comfort that we can have is that 
uh, God's immutable, unchangeable purpose is to do us eternal good. To make us, right now, believers in Christ, regenerated children of God, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, being sanctified by that Spirit, justified by the righteousness of Christ, and one day to be glorified in His presence. God's immutable purposes, unchangeable purposes, friend, is to bless you. To bless you, and to bless you, and to bless you, and to bless you. And sometimes those blessings will feel like pain, and sometimes they'll look like sorrow, and they will, it will be. But, but behind the pain and in the sorrow, Scripture is just full of the truth that God is at work for good, to bless, to bless, to bless. I love what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 12, verse 32. It's, it's one of my favorite verses. Where Jesus says to his disciples, fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. Why? It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Everlasting life and glory and honor in the presence of God in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And God is going to give that freely to you. It's His good pleasure to do so. He has purposed it. And what God purposes will not and cannot change. Paul's letters are full of this. Think of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 9. Listen to what Paul says. God has not destined, purposed us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with Him. That God's purpose for you, if you've confessed your sin, if you've called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's purpose for you, a purpose that brought you to that faith and that confession, God's purpose is to, for you to obtain all the glories of salvation in Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 14. To this he called you, sovereignly called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the things that we neglect and forget, this is maybe one of the most hurtful to our own comfort and peace. That we forget, think of this, we've been promised the kingdom and we forget it. We've been promised that God's purpose is that we might obtain salvation, that we might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, it's just an astonishing thing. This is God's purpose and desire, and what He desires, that He does. What He purposed from eternity past is going to be your experience irrefutably in eternity to come. Because God does not change. All authority and power belong to Jesus. Who can turn Him back? Who can stay His sovereign hand? If Jesus has purpose, has purposed to save you to the uttermost. And if he is exercising all of his sovereign power to lead you day by day, all the way until you reach his presence, if he's purposed that, which he clearly has, 
Well, what have we to ask beside? And what have we to fear? And you see, friend, this is why a sinning, struggling believer like you, like me, why we can say confidently with Job, when I am tried, when I'm tested, I shall come forth as gold. How do we know that? Because it, it often, don't, don't you sometimes fear that you won't come forth as gold? Don't you sometimes fear that you're just going to collapse? That your faith will falter and stumble and fall? Well, see, this is the wonder again of the gospel. We know that we will, be, we will come forth as gold because we've already received the free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ and, and because God has purposed to work His righteousness within. He, God has purposed it. God is at work in our sanctification just as He is at work in our justification. And the work that He's begun, He always carries to completion. God has no unfinished projects. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might say, yeah, I hope so too. But that's not how Paul ends. He says, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. He who called you, who purposed to save you, he is faithful and immutable and unchanging and he is powerful, he will do it. No matter how weak your faith, no matter how strong your temptation and sin, no matter what trials God might sovereignly ordain for you. He who called you is faithful, He will do it. He who called you is faithful, He will do it. That is the thread that runs through every circumstance and detail of your life. Because God has purposed it. All the sovereign power of King Jesus is engaged with infinite skill and perfect wisdom for your eternal glory and good. And so that every day you can have the confidence that this day in all of its details is my sovereign Father and my loving King Jesus working with all their power and infinite wisdom and skill to bless, to do good. Forever. Friends, that's a growing, deepening, strengthening faith. God has given us a trial. There's no doubt about it. Not a great trial as compared to what many of our brothers and Christians are experiencing around the world, but a real trial. Let's let the Lord use these trials to grow our faith in a transforming way. Our faith in the reality of God. His omniscience, He knows. We're the little 10-year-old in the back seat. That's okay. It's a great place to be. Let's trust his omniscience. Let's trust that he is just. And because Jesus Christ has died for us, we must be saved that our salvation is as certain as God's justice. And let's trust his sovereign love. He's leading us. And he'll lead us all the way. We're going to sing in a moment, all the way my Savior leads me. My Savior, my King, my Sovereign Lord leads me. What have I to ask beside? 
Can I doubt His tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. In a world of things we don't know, let's be the 10-year-old in the back seat. And let's do the things God's called us to do. Let's acknowledge all the things we don't know. But let's remember our heavenly Father, our loving Jesus. He knows. He knows. And He does all things well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, it is an astonishing thing to be a child of the living God. What what an amazing thing that we would be the objects of sovereign, loving purposes. And yet, Father, that is what you promise to us in your word. I thank you, O Lord, that our life is not an accident. Our circumstances have not come to us randomly. But, Father, you are weaving this pandemic and all the circumstances and trials of our life into our life with infinite wisdom and skill to teach us to purify our faith, to deepen our confidence in you, that our joy might be increased, that our courage would grow, that Jesus would be more precious to us, that we would uh, be more and more like Him as, as you purify our false, our false assumptions and beliefs and you strengthen our conviction based upon your word that you are a God to us, a God who will save to the uttermost, that Jesus is a shepherd who leads us and we lack nothing in Him. Lord, I pray that as we look back on these trials, we can say, this the Lord has done for us. He made our faith to grow. And it was good for us to have been afflicted. Lord Jesus, thank you. And thank you that one day we will see you face to face and we will spend eternity thanking you and praising you and rejoicing in your sovereign, glorious love for us. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and sing together the classic hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and this, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you until we see our Savior face to face. Amen.
Good morning, boys and girls. Come on up to the front. We're gonna start out, start out with Hosanna. The victory is mine when the battle is the Lord's. Let's sing it, big voices. How great thou art. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works your hands have made, even snowstorms. Let's sing it.
sing our new song, The Steadfast Love of the Lord Never Fails. Let's sing it. Never Ceases. before we go to our classes is Lord make me clean like the new fallen snow let's sing it we'll sing it through two times Right, are we ready to go to our classes? I'm going to look for teachers. All right. 